Welcome back to Diaspora.nz, where we're seeking out and profiling the hidden gems, founders, innovators, and off-the-radar leaders of the great Kiwi expat community. I'm your host, David Booth, and today we're excited to chat with Mike Forster. He's a founder, angel investor, and big brand marketing guru. Mike was one of the founding team at Onfido, a red-hot UK-based fintech startup, which has raised over $60 million today. He's since moved back to Australia, where he heads up digital strategy for young brands in Sydney and is an active angel investor. Today we're chatting about lessons learned the hard way and what Mike calls street fighting your way to Series A, how the marketing landscape is evolving with big data, and what Mike's really looking for in his angel investments. I want to give a special shout out to Dave Insell at Cover Genius who made the introduction to Mike. Really appreciate it, Dave. But with no further ado, let's get over and start the show. Excited to get into this, uh, but thanks for joining us, Percy. Very, very glad to, uh, to be here. So you have a fascinating background and it spans several different industries and academic tracks and you've currently found yourself in Australia with a really interesting role with young brands, but I'm keen to learn a bit about how you got there. What, what have you done with your last decade, summed up in uh, two minutes? <laughs> yeah, I try to bludge off and go surfing as much as I can. Um, so look, uh, the, 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 the Cliff Notes version is uh, University of Otago Law Arts. Uh, from there into uh, deep soul-crushing distress in, in New Zealand law firms, uh, into uh, failed New Zealand startups, which was was a richer experience, but probably more soul-crushing. Uh, then Ray of Light, scholarship to Oxford, uh, joined at Oxford, sort of went, yeah, I've got some startup experience. So sort of networked as, as one of the, you know, the old heads. Met a group of guys who ended up being my co-founders with a business called Onfido. Uh, and then moved back from Australia after my, my study over there with the number one priority of, we're pretty broke right now and really don't like this law thing. So I'm going to try to move into business, young brands, voila. Brilliant. And, and you told me, I think, when we when we were first int- introduced, it was summarized as um, you're focused on learning about what makes big retail brands tick and, and specifically understand that means marketing and interacting with customers. Some really interesting sort of ideas around uh, what they're doing to engage with this new breed, the millennial. <laughs> Tell me about it. I mean, what's, what, what are the, the real, real key challenges? What are the key trends you're seeing today? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I think that the paradigm shifting thing that's affecting um, you know long established businesses that have a sweet spot, whether it's you know selling fried chicken or making tires or something else, is the explosion of data and in particular consumer data. It, it changes everything. It changes the operational side from probably right down to how you manage people as automation increases, um, and it changes how you interact with your consumers as well. You know, people hold all brands to the standards of what they get from Facebook and Google. If it's not personalized and relevant, it's shit. And it's all um, opt-in, you, you know, consent, consensus-based marketing. So if you're a big brand, you're not going to get the circa 1997 80% click-to-open rate that, you, you know, you would have 20 years ago. You, you have to go from being a tire manufacturer to somehow being digitally savvy with legacy systems and people in the business who, you know, are very good at doing the business's core competency, but, you know, being hit with these big disruptive waves. Um, so, you know, I think, I don't know if that really answers the question, but I think that's part of the backdrop of, of what I've sort of found myself in. Yes, it does to an extent. And, and I suppose the challenge for you working with a, a big brand like this is to understand what are the important channels. Um, I mean, as you say, there's a huge amount more consumer data out there now. How do you use that and use it to redirect your uh, attention at specific user segments across sort of maybe a Facebook uh, versus Snapchat? 
Yeah, so that that's another one um, where, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I'd say that particular question is probably more tactical than what I think about every single day. Um, I'm more focused on how do you how do you steer the Titanic in the right direction? You know, whether whether that to me that's a, that's a are you going northeast or northwest type question? It doesn't really matter to me, provided we're going north, because in a lot of these brands you can you can be heading due south, and that's exactly the wrong thing to do. You, you know, I'll give you a quick example of what I mean by that. Um, you know, a business might invest a couple million dollars in a new software platform for Salesforce or something, and they don't see any return on investment for two, three, four years. McDonald's did this, and then they then they stop doing it. Now, in that business's core competence set, if they had a new burger promotion and they weren't selling that burger, they wouldn't go, burgers don't work, we're not going to do burgers. They would go, this particular burger that we've made hasn't worked. But where it's a business's first foray into what I'll call broadly digital, and it goes like that, you know, sunk hole with millions of dollars, they go, this digital thing, you know, is it a hoax? Do we want to play here? Now, the truth is you have to play there, but there's a misattribution of, of cause and effect uh, and an inability to sort of uh, drill down on what's happening, diagnose the problem, and then fix it, which is just a product of big seismic shifts in, in our world and in the consumer landscape. Have you had any uh, sort of real insight into this, in particular from uh, your own background in the, in the startup universe? And, and I mean, a lot of what you're describing is really uh, how a big company would respond to sort of you know, McDonald's trialing a new burger and, and getting it out there. But often a startup doesn't have the luxury of being able to trial one product for two or three years. And if it fails, then hey, well, that's okay. It was just this one. How would you approach that uh, as a startup founder as opposed to in your in your current sort of role? Yeah, it's so funny because there's such different ways of solving problems and everybody always thinks the grass is greener on the other side the startup founder sits there and goes gee my life would be easier if i had a discretionary budget of hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars i you know problem solved you sit around the table in, in a big corporate and everybody goes you know what i could e i could solve this in a heartbeat if i didn't have any pullback and i could just move how fast a startup moved i didn't have to align people or i didn't have any legacy pullback from my systems or whatever else the truth is it's both more complicated and more simple than that. In a startup, you die if you don't sell something to a real consumer who hands you a real dollar tomorrow. So it doesn't matter what your vision is and where you want to be in five years or how well you've picked the macro trend. If you can't find somebody to give you some cash, you're in big trouble. Whereas you know, in a big corporate, um, if you don't have tenacity of vision and the, the sort of energy to keep going back and say, no, no, we are on the right direction. We have to stick with this. Um, we have to unpick all the bits and bobs that are making us go slow here, not give up and redirect our attention to this, um, which often means starting very, very simply. Um, and I'll circle back to a question before of, you know, how would you pick between, um, you know, Facebook or Snapchat or Google? You know, the short answer is I would, I would do something fairly simple that has a fairly robust return. You don't have to boil the ocean with this stuff. You slowly build momentum and confidence. So the problem-solving skills that you're applying to each situation, they're quite different. Find something to sell tomorrow versus tenacity behind a vision. But it's quite interesting sort of connecting the dots. They're both two quite complicated problems to solve. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff here I want to unpack. And I want to do it through sort of the context of your experience in the early days. And, and you mentioned uh, your role with Sonfido context here that anyone has who hasn't heard of them yet. Onfido is a really interesting uh, UK startup raised uh, 
about 25 million uh, pounds very recently. Uh, team's grown to must be 160. The quote I think gave me was, you've really learnt from the, the ground up how to follow a dollar and pull a business apart and, and really to hustle those first few sales. And what were you doing in those early days that has sort of enabled the business to grow? Well, I started pretty cold in this whole thing, right? So my story started in a $50 a week flat in Dunedin in the A section of the yellow pages. And I called like double A builders and said, Hey, I got this thing. Do you want to buy it? And they're like, Mate, nah. <laughs> and, then I, and then I called single A builders and I got a very similar answer. Um, and, and so I guess the long story short on that one is I've got a litany of mistakes under my belt. Um, and I, and I, I want them in a pretty hard way to do it. I didn't know anybody in business. You know, I was a bloody honors law graduate going, I, I'm not really interested in law. I want to do business. How do I do that? Well, fuck it, I'm just going to start. And what that meant is by the time I got to on Fido, I could at least say things like, let's not pay $800 for a newspaper ad or let's go talk to somebody about the product they would buy before we make the product, you know. Uh, that kind of thing. I don't know if that's the answer, but that, that's the way into it. And the rest of the team came in from similar backgrounds. Uh, how did you guys develop as a team and to really sort of leap forward to the point where, where you are today? No, no, I was I was 25 years old, so I was the old guy in the team by like four years. <laughs> and they're going, what, you've really called people from the phone book? Far out. You've got a lot of experience. Let's um, tell me more about that. Um, so that was that was my role, you know. It was a founding team of four of us, um, and I, I took a silent role moving back to Australia. For those guys, they had never tried to live off their own business before, but they were obscenely smart. And in the very early days, we really didn't know anything other than the fact that we wanted to do a startup. You know, we were having debates of do we just vet people on Tinder and figure out whether they're creeps or not? You know, is that was there a business around that? So it, it started pretty fast and loose. And the value I was able to add is like, this is in 2011. And every startup business we were seeing were trying to be the Facebook of. That they were all, uh, we will create a marketplace. The marketplace will be worth millions. Everybody will you know, buy a yacht. And uh, you know, I come out of New Zealand where nobody gives you money for anything until you're making money. And I was like, okay, we're not going to follow some idea that has cash as a sort of distant horizon, maybe one hypothetical day in the future. We're going to do an idea that gives us cash really early on. Because, But I think there's a fundamental truth that you only get when you ask customers for money. You don't get that truth in any other way. But, you know, Everybody thinks that an unpaid idea or a freemium model is a good thing, but they just don't do the paid bit. So I think you can actually iterate faster as a startup if very early in the piece you're asking real people for real money to fund your business. And so that, that was probably the insight that we started building on Fido off. And what that meant in practice was uh, we started selling effectively commodity background checks that you buy wholesale from the government. There's a mandated minimum price. We met the same price as all our competitors. Uh, and we said, but we've got firstly a value add in the sense that we'll put a platform behind this. We're not just going to mail you the check. We're going to give you a a platform to store your checks. And secondly, we, we've got a vision for what this is going to be. Um, you know, this this is not just about background checks. We think that you also need to know people's identity as well for a background check to be worth anything. And we think we'll be able to solve that problem for you. We think that even if you're not background checking right now today, we think you're going to in 24 months. So you should start thinking about it now. You know, they were the that was the start of the Onfado story. And I'm really interested in sort of how these three key phases, and, and I suppose, yeah, 
trackers in here as well um, have sort of impacted your current investment thesis. Keen to hear a little bit about what you're looking for, you know, how you can tell a founding team from another and, and who you want to be involved with. The big theme here is on your consummate generalist. You know, there's some merit to being able to see all the composite parts of a business and how they fit together. And, you know, that's kind of my shtick. What that means is it rules out a tremendous number of businesses that, you know, I effectively can't be involved with. You know, take your um, prototypical Israeli business, which is we're going to design a bit of code that makes the rocket fire a little bit faster. And we can apply that in, you know, the back end of some search algorithm and no customer is ever going to know it. And nobody outside our field is going to know how brilliant it is, but it's worth millions. You know, I'm like, good luck, boys. I don't even know what you're talking about. My deal is much more earthy, much more antipodean. Right. The standard businesses that I look at are basically guys that go into a traditional sector or industry, ideally one that's that's growing. Uh, education technology would be a perfect example of this. You know, education's been around forever. Education technology is is the new bit of it, and then you know, machine learning applications within education technology is, in my mind, sort of you know the tip of that particular spear. So here I'm going, okay, I can get the fundamentals of your business model because anybody understand a basic consumer industry. And then I'm not going to quite get the really racy bits of that, but I'm going to be able to pick the people that can. What we look for in terms of investments is the people from those traditional industries who understand you know, the soft underbelly that's ripe for disruption and have a really clear point of view about what will add a lot more value in their space. And then we look to build a technical team around them. Or flipping it the other way around, a technical team who and this is more the on Fido story, you know, we went into background checking. We didn't understand shit about background checking, but we could see that there were a number of inefficiencies and we could see the promise of basic, you know, at the time, basic tech um, platform plays in that space. And we went, you know, we're just going to go in there and, and create a vastly superior product. So in terms of, of angel investing, you know, I sort of, I look for what I understand, which is those traditional guys branching out or, more tech-savvy players looking and hunting around traditional industries. Got it. So you're a Kiwi who's sitting in Australia, and, and when you're looking at businesses like these, uh, they're, they're, they're down the bottom of the world, and, and so often you know, the markets that they're going to be selling into are the US, Europe, Southeast Asia. How do you approach building the sort of the commercial strategy with that company or analyzing it for a potential investment when it's, when it's down here? What are the key sort of elements to, to be able to build a global business? Well, that's that's probably more a question around, you know, what particular value do me and my investing partners add? Um, you know, we don't look at going as, as co-founders. Co-founders need to be in the market that they're working in. They need to be working 100 hours a week and, you know, all that other stuff. But the role of a coach is quite different to that. One of our early angel investments, the entire competitive advantage was a deeply entrenched understanding of 14-year-old Singaporean high school students trying to pass their biology papers. You know, not something I know a lot about. Uh, the focus groups were an absolute trip. I didn't even understand the, the, the vernacular that you're using or what's important to them or the bone-crushing societal and parental pressure on, on, on those people. But I could see that I had a founder who understood that intimately and could understand why a U.S. top-down product doing the exact same thing would not catch on with that group of consumers. And we could also see a, a billion-dollar total potential market there as well. So what, what do we do being based in New Zealand and Australia? 
well, location means that, you know, you want to pick businesses where you can talk to them every day from a time zone perspective, but it, it more changes the dynamic of your interactions rather than anything else. So uh, you are generally location agnostic so long as you can speak to them every day. And, and the most important thing is to be in market, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Do you look at a, a particular stage? Uh, are you looking to invest in the very first round or, or as they've sort of got a little bit more traction and, and are starting to grow? I've got the most experience when you go from a total white piece of paper, like what are we going to do, period, all options are open. But to really add value there, you need to be entrenched in the business. Like it's quite hard to play that role within the time and financial parameters that I'm able to offer at the moment. So I look a little bit further down the path, but not heaps further for two reasons. One, the further you get down to the road of, you know, you're starting to hire a team of 10, 12 people with, you know, MBAs and that sort of thing. You've probably got your general strategy set, your more tactical iteration. You need a different sort of coaching, which I actually think is worth less in a lot of ways, um, you know, in terms of what stake of the business that sort of coaching should should command. Um, and, and the second thing as well is when you go a bit further down the track, Rightly so, you pay more for an equal stake in the business. So for, for me and my investing partner, Dave Insol, the, the magic place is when companies just starting to get product market fit. There may be, you know, they've definitely got more than sort of 10 to 20 customers. Um, but, you know, they're kind of talking with those customers a lot about what they want and they definitely don't have anything like recurring sales or scale. Um, the strategies are like they've got a point of view about it, but it's definitely not settled and all the preconditions to scale have either not been thought about or they haven't been developed. When, I, when we come in at that point, we're like, okay, we've done this before, guys. This is this is how we're going to systematically unpick your business apart, find the levers that are going to add the most value first and put energy behind them. My, my favorite final question, how can anyone who's listening to this or anyone they might happen to know uh, help you? In- yeah, we're, um, we're pretty, you know, we're pretty green angels slash VCs, right? We've probably looked at under two dozen businesses and you know we've only invested in a handful um and coming across a really good pipeline of um you know wicked committed uh founders it can be hard you're either in the scene fully and you're around that all the time or you're not so what that means for me is both dave and myself we're looking to back the person far more than we're looking to back the idea and we take a really long-term view so there's somebody out there uh listens to this and you're going you know what um you know i do have that passion got integrity, adaptability, good humor, all those, you know, good human traits that I think are far more predictive of success over the long term. Uh, you, you got an idea, you want to shoot the shit about it. Yeah, be in touch. Thanks again, Mike. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, per closing comments, he's keen to hear from founders with a technical edge, industry insights, the mad hustle and commitment to build and grow. These guys have been an absolute asset to have in your corner. So if you're interested in the intro or you know someone who might be, just pop us a note, team at diaspora.nz, and we'll make sure that gets through to them. Also, if you have any feedback on the episode, questions or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. We'll see you next time on diaspora.nz.